the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, You may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid, them, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? So uh, shortly after graduating from college, a couple of friends of mine were getting married, and they asked me uh, to read scripture at their wedding. And they actually wanted me to read from Genesis. Not this passage, but from Genesis chapter 2, 18 to 24. And the mother of the bride was quite clear. Stop at 24. Got it. And then at the rehearsal, I was asked, hey, you want, you want to practice your reading? I'm like, come on, it's the Bible. I can read it. I should have practiced. I should have practiced. Because I could have taken note that the passage actually sort of ends with verse 25. That's where the chapter ends. And I might have made a little note. Oh, I'm going I'm I'm to put a little, little mark in there. A little, little stop sign. Just to remind myself, stop there at 24. Maybe I could have developed a reading style that sort of indicated we are... I'm sort of pumping the brakes in this reading. We're going to wind this thing up at 23 and 24. We're done. But no, I just blew right through the stop sign and went right on to 25. And you know, like when Wiley e. Coyote blows up, you know, just blows went through, through off a cliff, there's the forward momentum, and then there's the moment and Wiley e. Coyote sort of turns the camera and does those audible blink, blink, and then like that. Well, I kind of had that about midway through verse 25. Going, going along, it says, both uh, the man and his wife were both made. And I looked up from my reading. Blink, blink. Ged. And then I finished the verse, but you couldn't even really hear it because there's this sound as I was going down. Uh, and there was there's sort of an irony to that, reading that verse about the man and his wife being naked and not ashamed because it was so not what I was. First of all, I wasn't naked. I was wearing that my first suit, that really nice suit I got for a different wedding. I, I, I like that suit. In fact, it was just maybe a month ago that I donated it uh, here in the, the center thinking maybe I'll wear it again. But no, I didn't have to give up that thought of wearing my 30-year-old suit. Anyway, so you got a vintage suit up there somewhere. Uh, anyway, and not only that, you, as the, despite, er, not only that, you have the man and his wife who are naked and feel no shame. 
at that moment, I felt very naked. I felt all those eyes sort of looking at me, and I just wanted to hide. Now, in my defense, it is sort of a weird tag onto that passage because it, the, the, if you recall from the chapter 2, it does this sort of strange thing. It's telling the story, and then also it sort of leaves the story and says sort of a general statement about, you know, so you have this love poem from Adam to, the, to Eve, and then um, this bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and then, and then it makes general proclamation, therefore a man shall leave his uh, uh, father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, and then all of a sudden we go back into the story, abruptly, back to this narrative about the first man and woman, and the fact that they are just traipsing around paradise hand in hand, so giddy, they don't even realize that all their bits are all out there on full display. But while it may feel abrupt, that description there is critical to understanding what happens next. Critical understanding the consequences of obedience because they eat and their eyes are opened. The giddy sort of oblivion they had known is over. Now there's a long tradition of, of interpreting this saying, oh, at this moment they realize they're naked. Oh, this must be when sexual, that's sexual desire. No, no, no. I mean, that, that can't be it. I mean, there's clearly passion in that poem Adam uh, composes for Eve. And they become one flesh. There's, sexual desire is a part of the creation. It's part of it. And not only that, bear with me here. It, sex is a bit of a metaphor for the whole operation, this one flesh, because the whole of creation is bound up in this oneness, right? That everything comes out of the earth and, you know, God, it relates to humanity and humanity, the earth. And humanity is this sort of uh, combination of earth and, and spirit and all this stuff. And so there's this, this thriving intimacy that's just sort of central to the way the whole thing operates. The oneness of Adam and Eve is there's a oneness to the whole thing that makes creation paradise. Um, I don't know if any of you saw get back that what, like eight hour documentary about the Beatles. Um, we get to watch them trying to record the, the album that would become Abbey Road. And it comes at a time when their relationships are all they're, they're strained. John, drug addiction is, is, is it's at its worst. Uh, George, his marriage is on the rocks. Paul feels like he's trying to hold the whole thing together hold the whole thing together. Meanwhile, he's being accused of trying to take over. Now, Ringo is still Ringo. He's just... <laughs> so he's cool. But they're weary because it is being the most popular people in the world has taken a toll on them. And so they're weary. They're struggling to record this album. And then this guy, Billy Preston, shows up. And they met Billy uh, in 1962, when he was touring as uh, Little Richard's keyboard player, and the Beatles were just this cover band who had a regular gig in a, at a bar in Hamburg, Germany. 
And they, be, they formed a friendship there. And then Billy, and so when Billy comes in, they're all excited to see him. And you can see why they love this guy. There's sort of an innocence about him. I mean, he doesn't say much, but he sure smiles a lot. And he love, you can just see he loves, he loves to play. And it, it sort of transforms the band, right? It's like they get in touch, not only with what, who they were back in 1962, it's like they get in touch with that world of Genesis 1 and 2. Because all that stuff that's dividing them falls away, and they just play. And they enjoy one another's playing. And there's this, you can see that uh, there's this intimate connection between band members. And, there's, and that line between what it means to give and what it means to receive, what it means to love and what it means to be loved, it all just sort of melts away. They are a band again. They are one you know, when you have an experience like that, this, this transcendent experience, we use words like that, transcendent, we use words like mystical, this ex- mystical experience, feeling at one with everything. And we're, we're implying there that that experience transcends material reality, that it's some otherworldly experience. But it's not. Not if you take Genesis 1 and 2 seriously. It's precisely the opposite. That sort of experience is what you were designed for. To feel that connection. To thrive in intimate connection with others. Living so, you know, it's like you live so fully you don't even realize whether you have clothes on. Right? And it's not that you're, I mean, making this as a sort of, a metaphor for our, our vulnerability. It's not as though you're suddenly become invulnerable. It's not as though it's just your vulnerability is so well hidden and well guarded. No, you just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You are just living. And I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that, but it can come in a variety of forms. Um, Jen and I we watched, you know, the British Bake Off. And recently we, started, we watched a few episodes of this one where it's, uh, what's, what's, Drinking one, where they make mixed drinks. Same sort of thing. Drink masters or something, right? And it's, I'm, I always, there's always part of me that sort of rolls my eyes when you hear these contestants talking about, oh, when I, when I bake, I give people a part of myself. I'm like, oh, really? I mean, it, it's a cream puff. It's not your soul, you know? Uh, but no, and these, these people who mix drinks, they talk the same way. They have these sort of experiences. And, and I think that that feels foreign to me because... Uh, baking and panic are very closely related when I, in my life. Like it's, just, it's just about not setting things on fire. Um, but when I have not learned to hope, hey, no whispering, Mom. <laughs> She's got something you want to share with the rest of us? <laughs> anyway, but I, I have not learned to hone my senses the way they have. To know how this taste will combine with this. I've not learned the chemistry of when, what happens when you mix this with this and add heat. I mean, you, lo- you can lose yourself in that. And when you're done, you sort of find yourself again. Look, this is, this is for you. I can't appreciate it that, but clearly that, that too offers a, a road into this world that we, uh, is described in Genesis. Just losing yourself and finding yourself and some sort of mystical experience. And you know, here's the thing. It's not like, even if you find something like that, 
It's not like you have to experience that every time. It's such a powerful experience. You just have to experience it once. And you will continue to, you'll continue to dedicate yourself to it in order to ex- possibly experience it again. I mean, you'll, I've heard about, heard about comed- comedians saying, you know, I was six years old the first time I made a room full of adults laugh, and I have been looking for that ever since. You know, people will dedicate, them, parents will dedicate themselves hours of shopping and decorating and so forth around these holidays because there was that one time, that one Christmas, that one Thanksgiving, where we were all so connected. We had such a good time. To have just even taste that it will motivate you for the rest of your life. Because that is, you're getting in touch with what's at the heart of what God created. So what happens in this passage? I mean, up until this point, that's all Adam and Eve experiences. That thriving connection. They've been so immersed with it. So immersed in it. They didn't even realize they were naked. Right? They, they had no opportunity to step out of that. But suddenly, there they are. How's, how's that serpent do it? Well, it reminds me of the uh, joke that David Foster, it's not very funny, by the way, so I'm going to snack this, but it's David Foster Wallace, who I'm a big fan of. Uh, it's one he likes to tell. A, a joke about two fish that are swimming, two young fish swimming along. They come across another fish, an older fish. And the older fish says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on. Eventually, the other one says, what the heck is water? Because right? they're so immersed in it, they don't even know what it is. Well, Adam and Eve are so... Thanks for laughing, by the way, Susie. This Adam and Eve are so deep in the groove of paradise. They're just thrown by this question. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree of the garden? Yeah, before this, at this point, I really thought about it. It's just the way things were. Uh, it was rea- the reality we simply accepted and lived into. Felt no need to question it, to evaluate it, but suddenly, no, I don't know. And suddenly this God, who has been so abundantly generous uh, in meeting all their needs, suddenly they start wondering. Maybe, maybe, maybe God is holding out on us. Instead of giving us life, maybe God is withholding life. So Eve, she eats first. Adam, who's right there, he eats. And it's what I, one of these sort of fascinating little details I like about this story is that it, it's after they both have eaten that immediately their eyes are open. Um, it's only when they see the other person seeing them they realize what they've done. Now, history has approved me for two David Foster Wallace references per sermon, so here's my second one. It comes from his novel, The Pale King, and it talks about there's this kid's talking, or he's now a grown man reflecting back on a time when he was in college with his buddies, sitting in the living room, getting high, lounging around, and all of a sudden the door opens, and there's his dad, dad you know, and his dad puts down his suitcase, and he's reaching for his hat, and he looks up and he sees them in his living room. And he doesn't really say much. And he never brings it up. 
But the son is haunted by that memory because his dad doesn't have to say anything because in that moment, seeing his dad, seeing them, he sort of start, he sees himself as if for the first time. Suddenly he sees how his dad is seeing it. The wrapper, uh, the, the, the bag of, empty bag of chips, it's balled up in a foot short of the, the wastebasket. The rings on the, uh, on the coffee table right next to the unused coasters. And of course, the haze of pot in the air. He sees himself and he, he says, you know, I used to joke, call my, we'd call ourselves wasteoids. But is that, that moment wasn't a joke and I realized I was wasting my life. So it's being seen. We feel the weight. The weight of their action sets in when Adam and Eve look at one another. When they see themselves in the eyes of the other person, that's when everything changes. They're no longer immersed in life, in thriving connection with all things. Now they realize how vulnerable they are, how disconnected they are. It's not just that they've done wrong. It's that they feel like they are wrong, that they don't belong here, and they want to hide. And so that's what they do. They hide their bodies. And of course, their bodies are not their, the issue. The vulnerability of their bodies is the issue. The vulnerability is is where we that's why we carry our shame there because it's, that's where we experience what is the issue of our vulnerability of our shame carried in our body that's where we feel the weight of being seen and you know so much of our economy is built around body hiding encouraging us to think you know, hey, at least you can make your body look like it's invulnerable, right? Uh, you know, and if we're not doing these things, if we're not buying the products to help us in our hiding, uh, we need to be ashamed of ourselves. Right? I mean, that's sort of the underlying message there. And I think women in particular are body shamed, but, you know, men too are often in, in a different way. And I feel a little self-conscious talking about this, but I remember reading an article talking about how men grow up desperately afraid of being called the P word. And I found that very interesting, right? Because what it's saying, I mean, it's a word about, that's a word about naked bodies. And it's like, you're gonna, it's, you've been exposed and your naked body exposes you as something other than you claim to be. That's sort of what's being said there. So there is something we all can carry in our body for a number of different reasons. It's a shame that we feel we need to hide. We all carry shame in our bodies. And most of the time, most of us can keep it rather well hidden. But it's there. And so the threat of being exposed, of being seen, of seeing ourselves in someone else's look, it's always there. And so we get good at hiding. But there's a vast difference between being well-hidden and living. There's a vast difference between hiding yourself and losing yourself in life so that you might find yourself. 
In fact, these things are the opposite. They're opposite undertakings. So how does God respond? You know, we stop there with this question. What's sort of a long-term response? And salvation is that response. And we tend to think of salvation in terms of uh, individual acts uh, of sin that we receive God's grace from, right? The, the various ways in which we eat the fruit, eat forbidden fruit. But it's, it's, it, goes, it is that, but it's beyond that. It's not just the acts, it's the shame that needs to be addressed. So how is God going to address that? How is God going to invite us to come out of hiding and experience life, experience love? Well, how, how is God gonna do that? Well, God's gonna do it first for us because what what does God do God becomes a body a vulnerable body vulnerable just like ours are vulnerable God takes that out but they think well yeah but God doesn't carry that shame because Jesus is you know sinless true but we sure did everything we could to make him feel ashamed right I mean that's the cross the cross isn't designed just to kill you. It's designed to put your naked body on full display, to shame you. And of course, what God does, and Jesus goes there, doesn't fight, he goes willingly. Why? Because he's showing us the way to come out of hiding, to know that even when there is, even though we are vulnerable, even though that we carry the shame, there is grace, there is resurrection, there is life, there is thriving connection. God leads the way. So we don't come out because, we don't come out of hiding because we're invulnerable. No, we remain vulnerable. We are still creatures made from earth, but we are creatures made from earth by a God who loves us. So that's why we come out of hiding because we are loved and it's in doing that that we can know life abundant life eternally name of the father and the son and holy spirit amen